Welcome to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast, where we bring you sermons from our teaching team at Flood Church, Lilongwe, Malawi. For more information, you can go to floodchurch.com. Today we are launching a new series uh, which will be based in the book of Nehemiah, Um, a fantastic book. Uh, I loved Nehemiah the first time I heard that uh, Bible joke of like, uh, who was the shortest man in the Bible? And the answer is Nehemiah. Uh, so I was like, oh, I need to know that person. I need to know that guy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we're going to be in this book of Nehemiah, not Nehemiah, uh, <laughs> Nehemiah. And we will be diving into this book. And if you can, uh, if you have ever read this book, you'll see that Nehemiah was obsessed with wars was obsessed with wars. And now we can relate because, you know, most of us live in homes that are built around wars. So we actually do understand that. Uh, I hear that there was a time when uh, there was a rule. It was against the law for you to build a wall around your house in Lilongwe. It was a cool time. Those times were cool. I remember those times. We go to Area 18 and no wars, just houses, flowers outside. So beautiful. But now we have walls around us. So we kind of like understand this idea of having a wall around us. But Nehemiah is just not concerned about physical wall. He's also concerned about the people that are living in those walls. So we have entitled this series, Out of the Ruins. Because the wall that Nehemiah is going and he wants to build and is going to build it, uh, this wall was in ruins for a long time. And when something is in ruins for a long time, it means that it has been neglected. It's been neglected for a while. So you might have an area of your life where you have neglected. An area of your life where you are yet to sort things out. And we all have things that we need to sort out in our lives. It could have been maybe a habit that you want to leave behind. And you've been trying to get rid of this habit. Uh, and you've been procrastinating on it, and you're yet to leave it behind. Or maybe a habit that you want to pick up, you know, a habit that you, ha- you want to pick up, and you've been saying, okay, 2019, my New Year's resolution, it's going to be this. And you're yet to pick up that habit. You still have time, though. You can still do it. Or maybe, you know, maybe I want to grow in my, my spirituality. Uh, uh, you know, I want to grow, I want to grow in the way that I treat people. I want to grow in this area. All of us have areas that we need to sort out. Some might be maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from someone. Maybe you just need to make a phone call and you've been waiting to make that phone call because you are afraid what they're going to say. But maybe you have to do it. Maybe you have to do it because God is in the business of building lives. And when he builds lives, He is building lives for himself. So our bottom line for this series will be lives built by God for God. Lives built by God for God. And what we hope is that maybe God will be speaking to you to show you an area where it needs building or rebuilding. Or maybe God would use you to help someone else build something in their life or help rebuild something. In their lives. So we are hoping that you're going to be paying attention to what God is saying to you throughout this series. Uh, We have an amazing group of teachers here at Flood Church. And I cannot wait for us to go 
through this series. It's going to go on for 13 weeks. And the same passages that we are reading here in church, they'll also be read in growth groups so we can dive more into the passages. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I worship you, God, for you are good. You are amazing, Lord. And we pray that uh, your spirit would be here this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, before we read the passage today in Nehemiah chapter 1, I just wanted to kind of like, you know, give you a little history of the people that we are reading about, but also to just point you to where we are in the story of the Bible. Um, and, you know, you guys remember a guy by the name of Moses. Uh, he's probably known by that famous phrase, let my people go, let my people go. Moses was a guy that grew up in Egypt and, uh, you know, stuff happened. He runs away, uh, and then he ends up being a shepherd. You know, he ends up being a shepherd of, uh, you know, he was a shepherd to sheep of, uh, that belonged to his father-in-law. But as he was out there in the wilderness, God says to him, hey, you know what? I have a mission for you. I want you to go to Egypt and rescue my people. Uh, which people are these? These are the Israelites that were in Egypt for many, many years, and they were slaves there. And they were crying out to God, and God says, I've heard their cry. So Moses, I want you to go and rescue them. So Moses says, all right, we're going to go. It wasn't that simple, but eventually he said, yes, we're going to do it. So he goes out and he rescues these people through God's power. He takes them and God said, actually, I have a place for them to go. And this is what we call the promised land, the land of Canaan. He said, I'm taking you. I want you to take them on a journey. Uh, but God says, you know what? I have a way for you that you have to go through. So they're going through this wilderness. Because God had the mission. His mission was to build a nation. A nation that can live for him. So God builds this nation of, the, uh, of Israelites by giving them commandments. Because he wants them to be built in his own way. So he says, uh, Moses, I have ten commandments that you need to have. And you need to share with these guys. So he gave them uh, you know, these commandments. And not only is Moses known for... Uh, carrying out the commandments of God and communicating them to uh, you know, the, uh, the people of God. But also what happened with Moses is that God said he should build two things. The first one was to build a box that uh, they were going to call the ark. You know, so this box would have the two tablets which had the, the ten commandments on them. The, these two commandments will be in this box called the ark. After building this, it had specific instructions on how to build it. After doing it, then God says, you know what? This ark needs a house. So we need to build a house. And they called this house a tabernacle. And it was a tent. So you can call this a mobile temple that they built. Because they would move to one place. They would pitch it. Put the house of God in there. Worship God. And then God said, okay, move again. And then they would, you know, uh, they would tear down everything. And then pitch it again somewhere else. So they had this mobile temple. And uh, these guys were on this journey going to Canaan. But a lot of them disobeyed God, including Moses himself. God was not pleased with a certain action he did. So God says to him, you're not going to go and enter into the, land of the, into the promised land. So what we're going to do is that there will be people that will take the Israelites. So Joshua... You know, God says, I'm going to raise Joshua to be the one that will lead the Israelites into the promised land. So sure enough, Moses dies and a lot of people died in that wilderness. 
but Joshua takes them into the promised land. So they get into the promised land. When they got into the promised land, the Israelites saw that the people around them had, uh, you know, kings that were rulers. So these guys say, you know what? We also need a king. We need a king of our own. Uh, so God says, okay, be careful what you wish for, but I'm going to give you a king. So there's this guy who becomes the first king of Israel, and his name was Saul. His name was Saul. He was the first king of Israel. Uh, you know, Saul was very tall, handsome, but he made some bad decisions. So God says, you know what? I'm taking away the kingship from your house. I'm not uh, going to be dealing with you anymore. I'm going to give this kingdom to someone else. And Saul knew that this kingdom was going to go to a guy by the name of David. Uh, you know, most of you would know David through that story of David and Goliath. When he kills this massive giant and he killed the giant with a stone. So God gives, uh, you know, he gives this kingdom to David. And then David is now the new king. Uh, you know, actually he built this united uh, kingdom. And then what happens is that David saw that mobile temple. He's like, you know what? I have this kingdom. I, we cannot be having this mobile temple. Let's have something that's concrete, something that we can go to. So he says to God, I want to build you a temple. And God says, nah. Uh, and he's like, come on. You say I'm the man after your own heart. Why are you saying no to this? And this is a fantastic idea. Of course, we need to have a place. Uh, but God says no because you have killed a lot of people. You have blood on your hands. I don't want somebody with blood on their hands to build a house for me. But with this, what are we going to do? What we're going to do is your son will build a temple for me. So David says, okay, fair enough. We're going to do that. Uh, so, you know, David uh, dies and then his son, you know, comes on to be the king. And his name was Solomon. You know, Solomon was, uh, you know, the, the son uh, of David. And this guy is also known to be the wise guy because he asked God for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. Uh, but we also know that Solomon was rich, very, very rich. And uh, what Solomon did, one of the uh, you know, biggest projects that he did was to build the temple for God. So Solomon built the temple for God, and it was amazing. And one of the coolest things that happened on that day, when they were, uh, on the day they were launching the temple, or the, when they were dedicating the temple to God, the Bible says that the priests wanted to go into the house and uh, to do work there. But there was this massive cloud into the temple. The presence of God was so big that it was a distraction to the priests. That the priests failed to do their work because of the presence of God. How cool is that? You know, sometimes God, I, I feel like God was communicating to them. You know what? Do not be concerned with doing things for me. Be with me. I wanted to just be and enjoy my presence right now in this moment. So stop. You know, be distracted. It's the coolest thing to be distracted by God's presence. To not do your work because of God's presence. So that's one of the coolest things that happened on that day. A cloud. And everybody saw what was going on. Everybody saw what happened there on that day. And then at the end of that, Solomon gives this massive and, and beautiful prayer to God. He was kneeling the entire time. If you can read the prayer, you'll be like he was kneeling this entire time. Probably four hours kneeling to God and praying. Now... Solomon, even though he was a wise guy, but he made some more unwise decisions. Uh, he ended up having 700 wives. 
and 300 concubines, 1,000 in total, women to himself. Um, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it tells you kind of like the heart, what was going on in his heart. He said, anything that I wanted to do, anything else that I thought this will, will bring me pleasure, I did it. Imagine that. Anything, any little thing that you want, you do it. But anyway, it did, things didn't turn out right for him because now some of his wives or this, some of the women that he, he, you know, he was with were not fearing God and they were worshipping other gods. They were worshipping idols and they convinced Solomon in his wisdom, they convinced him to start worshipping idols. And Solomon said, that's the coolest idea. We're going to do that. So he starts worshiping idols, and God is so angry with him, and God says, you know what? What you have done, what you have done is so evil to the point that I'm going to divide this kingdom. So, but because I respect your father, David, I'm not going to do it in your time. I will do it later on. So Solomon dies, and after Solomon dies, uh, and a bunch of other kings come in, and the kingdom of Israel was divided. So you had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. The northern kingdom had ten tribes, and the southern kingdom had two tribes. But what happened is that these people disobeyed God. So God had a promise. He said, if you disobey me, you know what I will do is I will bring you calamities. I will actually scatter you across the earth. So they, they started first with the northern kingdom, the Israelites. The, 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 uh, the, the kingdom of Israel in the northern kingdom, they disobeyed God. And God brought in their enemies to defeat them. And these enemies were the Assyrians. Assyrians came in and uh, defeated the Israelites. And what they did is they took all of the ten tribes and scattered them across the land. In fact, these guys were known as the missing tribes. Because you couldn't trace where they were at. The missing tribes. So they were gone. And now you're remaining with the uh, southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Now, the kingdom of Judah did well. They stayed faithful to God for a bit. You know, they're like, no, we're not going to be like those guys in the north. We're going to be, you know, we are from the south. Uh, we're going to be cool, you know. We're going to enjoy our time. So what happens is that they were obeying God, but eventually they started disobeying God. So God, the same promise, God keeps his promises. So he comes to them and he says, I'm going to bring their enemies to you guys. So he brings these guys called the Babylonians. And they, you know, come in and they take them into captivity. Now the Babylonians, they are, they, their rule was if we capture, you know, people and then we bring them to, to us and we want them to work for us, but we want them to also use their gifts in our land. That's how the Babylonians were doing their thing. You come in. Uh, what they would do to their kings, to their leaders, is that they will have their leaders uh, be doing manual labor. But everybody else who's gifted in an area, they'll say, come and contribute to our kingdom. That's what they were doing. And you can remember the, the Babylonians through the four famous boys. You have Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. Yeah? You know, these guys, uh, you know, they... they you know, they're known by, I think one of the songs that we sang this morning was, there was another in the fire. Actually, that story comes from there. Because one time, these guys, actually the three of them, didn't obey uh, that they should, you know, bow to the king. And the king throws, throws them into the furnace. 
you know, and they, they, they never got burnt because there was someone else in the fire protecting them. And that was Jesus, actually, with them in the fire. So, the Babylonians were ruling for a long time. But then, God made a promise through Jeremiah. He says, there will be a time when exile will be over, you know, for the people of God. And they will return back to where they came from. And God said, I'm going to use someone. So he used another kingdom. And this kingdom was called the kingdom of Persia. These guys were ruthless. Were absolutely great in war. So they came and defeated the Babylonians. And when they did defeat the Babylonians, they said, okay, all right. Wherever you came from, we want you to go back. And it actually wasn't only the Israelites. It wasn't only the people of God. It was the Egyptians and other people from other places that they should return back. And, and you find a name with these guys called Cyrus, King Cyrus, uh, whom God actually really used to bring the Israelites back. For the people of God to come back to Jerusalem, to where they came from in the first place, uh, they came in into three waves. Uh, you know, they were the first wave of people that came in. Sixty years later, another wave of people came in. Fifty years later, another wave of people came in. And now, this is where we are finding ourselves in, in this, uh, you know, in our series, the book of Nehemiah. So the, the book of Nehemiah is the last wave, the third wave of people that are coming back from captivity, that are coming back into Jerusalem. Now, you cannot truly understand the book of uh, Nehemiah without understanding the book of Ezra, which comes before it. In fact, in the Hebrew text, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. Uh, but, you know, we were too clever. We were like, no, let's separate this thing. Let's separate it. But actually, it's one book. And you can see the story, the way it carries out. When you start reading it in Ezra, you can go and, and follow it through. So in Ezra, you are seeing two people. You have one guy by the name of Zerubbabel. And uh, Zerubbabel brings out, uh, oh, yeah, I think Harry is known by uh, this name, Zerubbabel, uh, here. So, yeah, so Zerubbabel brings out you know, a group of people back into, um, you know, into Jerusalem. You know, it says, hey, let, let's go back. I'm going to lead you guys. And then the second group was with Ezra, and the third group was, was with Nehemiah. Now, these stories are very, very important for you to get because they are kind of almost parallel to each other. And the way it looks like is that the story goes the same way. You know, there was a Persian king who says, uh, okay, you can go back to your land. We're going to give you resources. We're going to support you and help you. And the group goes back. But when they are back, they meet uh, opposition. You know, and then when they meet the opposition, they defeat the opposition. But then uh, the, the books kind of like, or the stories kind of like end on the anti-climax. So you have Zerubbabel. What happened with Zerubbabel was that he brought these people in and he said, you know what, we're going to build the temple. We're going to build the temple. Because... Well, I think I didn't mention this. One of the things that the Babylonians did was to destroy the temple that Solomon built. Remember that temple? Uh, you know, they destroyed it and they destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. So when Zerubbabel came, he said, we're going to have to build the temple. So he started building the temple. Now, there were other people, the remnant, that remained behind and they did not go into exile. So these people, they say, hey, let's help build the temple. But Zerubbabel says, no, you have no part in this. 
and then that brings in conflict. And because it brings in conflict, then eventually Zerubbabel kind of like defeats or diffuses the situation. Um, but what happens is that, you know, after building the temple, uh, the temple never looked to be the same way. It was not as the beautiful, amazing temple that Solomon built. This one, it looked like a second-hand temple from Dab, and they were not happy with what was going on. So, I know some people, we love Dab, eh? Sorry. You know, but, but they, were, they, were, you know, they, they were not happy. And in fact, there was not the magic, you know, event of the cloud coming back, you know, to be on the temple. So the, the people that saw or remembered what happened in the former temple of Solomon, the Bible says they cried. They cried. They cannot believe we have come to this. Look at us. Look at us. No longer going to shops, just buying dap. That's what they were saying. I'm on you today. But this in the end brings out, you know, conflict. Um, and then this connects to the story of Ezra. Now Ezra comes in. Now Ezra was, a, you know, a man of law. He, he had learned the, what was called the Torah or those t the, the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and he knew the law pretty well. So he said to people, all right, guys, I want you to know about what God says. Uh, and then he gets them to memorize. He gets them to read, uh, you know, what was going on and uh, what God was saying to them. But what happened with Ezra is that when he came back, he found that people that were in the land had married women that were not from the people of God. So he said, no, 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 we cannot ha be having this mixing going on right here. We do not want this happening. Uh, so what we're going to do is everyone has to divorce their wives. And their children have to be sent away. This was Ezra. Now, this was not the law of God, actually. In fact, in, in the book of Malachi, Scripture talks about how God hates divorce. And Ezra received this instruction from the elders who said, you know what we could do? Let these guys divorce and then send the kids away wherever they're going to go. We're going to send them away. Now this brings out conflict, you know, it brings out a conflict. And then from there, we come into Nehemiah. Nehemiah who leads the third wave of Israel. This is where we are at now. Now, if you're reading the book of Nehemiah, in fact, this book was supposed to be the last book of the Old Testament. Because it was after this that we wait for 400 years, then Jesus comes in. Now, the story of Nehemiah is that he comes in. Now, his story goes the same way, too. Like, this guy comes in, uh, you know, he builds the wall, he faces opposition, he defeats the opposition. But Nehemiah was not just concerned about the war. He says, you know what? We need reformation. We need to have reformation happening in our land. People need to obey God one more time. People need to be worshiping God on the Sabbath still. So what he does is that uh, he... He makes people make vows, and people make vows. Yeah, we're not going to do this. Yeah, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. And then um, he goes back to where he came from. And then when he came back to visit, people were doing the things they said they were not going to be doing. So Nehemiah starts beating people up. Uh, he starts pulling their hair. And then the book ends. Uh, Nehemiah prays this prayer. said, God, 
see me, I tried. And then the book ends. That's, this is where we are at, guys. And we can see that there is no temple that can be built that will change your life. There is no city that can be built that will change your life. But unless Jesus Christ views the temple of our hearts, unless he builds the walls of our hearts, we're never going to be at peace. We're still going to go to our old ways. So we need Jesus Christ alone who can bring the true hope in us. The true hope in us. Now, because of today we're just laying the foundation, I still just want us to just dive in into this passage for the next 15 minutes. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. If you don't mind, please stand up as we read the word of God together this morning. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakariah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanan, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about Jude, the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, uh, are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your might hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. You may have a seat. This is the word of the Lord. In, uh, in 2011, uh, you know, that time I was at African Bible College, uh, and um, I think I was in my third year at school there. And uh, one time I was um, going into town and I saw uh, a newspaper and the headline said, uh, 11 killed in the lightning uh, in, in Mzimba. So I read the story um, and, you know, there was you know, a name which was similar to one of my cousins there, Naomi. I read it as like, oh, okay, all right. Uh, oh, too bad, too sad. So I, I went on. And then uh, a week later, you know, I heard that um, actually Naomi was my, my actual cousin. So my cousin was killed in this. And what happened was, you know, he was, uh, she was 11 years old, went to, to church that day. And, um, uh, you know, she went early. Uh, in my home village, people do not look at the time, what time is church. They look at their son. Like, 
oh yeah, it's time to go to church. Let's go. You know, um, but she said, you know what, I'm gonna go early. So she went to church. I was with friends in the, in, you know, in the church, and as they were there, a lightning struck. Uh, the church was, you know, a thatch had a thatched roof, and uh, you know, this lightning went into the church, burned the roof, and burned eleven kids, including my cousin Naomi. Now. When I read this story on the newspaper on the front page, I said, oh, well, too bad. Oh, that's sad. But when I learned that it is my cousin Naomi, my heart broke. My heart broke. Because now it is my family. It is no longer those people. It is now my family. Now it is someone who is a part of me. Now, it is someone whom I knew. Now, I felt that pain on a deeper level because I cannot just imagine this kid who went to worship God, 11 years old, struck by something that was natural. And I wrestled with that. I wrestled with that. But it's not easy for us to look at the brokenness around us, to look at the pain around us, to look at the suffering around us, and see that brokenness as someone who's on the outside. And when you see it as someone who's on the outside, it affects you differently than when you begin to look at as someone who's on the inside. When you're looking at the pain and the suffering and the brokenness around you as someone who's on the inside, it changes changes how you feel. It changes how you respond. It changes how you react. Now I know living in this part of the world, we have a lot, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain that we have around us. You know, the lack of tuition, the death of children like Naomi, HIV AIDS, cancer, unemployment, Lack of medicine in the hospitals, child abuse, domestic abuse, lack of food. Just the problems can be endless, isn't it? The list can be endless. And there's no single day that you are not coming face to face with some form of suffering or some form of pain or some form of brokenness. Some of you are living in it right now. Some of you are going through some of the things that I just said this morning. And you're wondering what is going on. Now the thing that I wrestle with the most is that. I want to be broken by the suffering that's around me. But I live in this part of the world where the needs are overwhelming. I live in this part of the world where everywhere I go, I'm going to see somebody suffering. I'm going to hear a story of suffering. Just yesterday, my wife and I were sitting across a, a, a lady who comes to this church or telling us a story of her son, 19 years old, who was found dead three weeks ago. Painful stories. How do you respond to that? I wrestle with that. I wrestle with What kind of person will I be if I have to respond to every single need that comes 
in my way. If I have to be broken with every single need that comes in my way, what kind of person will I be? Will I even be able to, to actually be joyful in God? Will I even be able to celebrate God's goodness? And I wish I said I could have an answer to that. Maybe you have. I'm yet to find it. But this thing, what I know, often when I begin to ask these type of questions, I know I'm being driven by fear, not love. I'm being driven by fear. Fear to feel. Fear to mourn. I'm being driven by fear. Fear to be there. Fear to enter into someone else's pain. That I can understand what's going on from the inside. And I don't want to enter on the inside. I don't want to get there. But here we have Nehemiah. Nehemiah is being visited by his brother. And he asked the question. So how are you going? That's the Australian way of saying how are you doing? How are you going? What's happening with you? What's going on with you? Tell me about Jerusalem. And he says these things. And this is what he said. They say to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, when I heard these things, I entered their story. I sat down and wept. For some, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God. Before God of heaven. I prayed before God. This was Nehemiah's reaction to what happened. He said, I spent days where I mourned. I fasted and I prayed. Now, if you can look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the guy, uh, you know, who was living in comfort. In fact, the last verse of the passage we read, he said, I was a cup bearer to the king. And what meant is that he was a wine tester. Before the wine goes to the king, he would test it first because the king never wanted to die. So he said, if, somebody's gonna, if the king is going to die, let somebody else die. And then we're going to know there was poison in this. So this person actually was to be trusted by the king because he was carrying the king's life in his hands or maybe in his drink in this case. You know, but he, he, the king had to trust him, had to say, this guy is great, this guy is good. And Nehemiah was living in comfort. But he had this story. And now I was surprised. I'm like, why now? Because Jerusalem, Jerusalem walls have been in ruins for a long time. Jerusalem walls are not in ruins just for this time when, you know, his brother came to tell him. They've been in ruins for a long time. Maybe there was a time when Nehemiah thought, that doesn't concern me. Maybe there was a time when Nehemiah says, that's not my job. Maybe there was a time when Nehemiah said, I'm going to see this problem as the one who is on the outside. I'm not going to allow myself to be on the inside. But this time, when he allowed himself to be on the inside, something changed. Nehemiah moved from being someone who just sees brokenness. He moved into someone who feels the brokenness. He never just heard about this brokenness. He felt it. Because now he's on the inside of this. 
Now, how do we become to be a part of, how do we become to be on the inside? It is when we offer heartfelt prayers, just like Nehemiah. When we come into contact with brokenness around us, the suffering around us, we need to face it through heartfelt prayers, through a heartfelt prayer. Because now, through that, we are choosing to not just hear, but now we are choosing to feel. We are choosing to not just see, but we are choosing to feel. We want to be on the inside. We want to be on the inside. So that's what Nehemiah chooses. And quickly, how does he do that? And I just want to see in his prayer the way he prays to God. This heartfelt prayer, the way he brings it to God. Number one, heartfelt prayers. In this, he was delighting in God's goodness. A heartfelt prayer would delight in God's goodness. In verse 5, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. There's brokenness in front of him. But where does he start with prayer? He says, you awesome God. You, the God of love. Because he's wanting to remind himself of God's goodness. Of God's goodness. Because we know when we are faced with brokenness. Brokenness is the power to blind us, to see. To not see God's goodness. To not see God's love. To not see God's mercy. To not see that God is actually faithful. So Nehemiah goes to a God who is faithful. The God who is loved. The God who is awesome. He said, you are a great God. You are a great God. And in his prayer, he exhorts God. He delights in God's goodness. But also his heartfelt prayer led him into confession. Verse 6 and 7 says, Let your ear be attentive, attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah realized that before the physical walls were broken, their inner walls were broken first. Before their physical walls were broken, their inner walls were broken first. In fact, the physical wall uh, being in ruins was a result of the inner walls being in ruins. So he confesses the sin. He says, God forgive us. He confesses the sin on behalf of the nation of Israel. He mourns this sin. But also, he confesses his own sin and the sins of his family. Now why? Why is he doing that? It's because every single time when you mourn over the brokenness of others, you're going to be reminded of your own brokenness. When you mourn over the brokenness of others, you're going to be reminded of your own brokenness. And in fact, I feel this is the way that can help us defeat pride when we are praying for others or helping other people. Because now you're seeing the other people just like you are. You're saying, I am I'm as broken as you are and you're as broken as me. So he says, I'm going to confess. I'm not just confessing the sins of those people. I'm confessing my own sins too. Because that's what he does. When we give, when we offer our heart prayers to God on behalf of others, we're going to be reminded 
of our own sinful nature. We're going to be reminded of our own sins. We're going to be reminded of our own brokenness, of our own need, that we need God. We need God. Heartfelt prayers will lead us into confession of sin because we realize that brokenness, the brokenness we see around is actually rooted in the fact or in the truth that we live in a fallen world. We live in this fallen world. And lastly, he off, his heartfelt prayers compels him to remember God's promises. He remembers God's promises. He remembers what God promised. Because it is easy when you have come face to face with brokenness to forget, to forget the promises God has made, to, not, to feel forsaken, to not feel cared for. But you are loved. God is with you. You are not alone. He cares about you. He's standing there, right there with you. So what's going on around you? What's happening around you? Are you just looking at the brokenness as somebody who's on the outside? Or are you willing to be invited by God to be on the inside? And your response would be a heartfelt prayer. Now, because we know the story of Nehemiah, it's, uh, you know, we go quickly to action. We say, okay, Nehemiah was a man of action, and he takes action. But I'm not too sure if he went straight like that. Because if you read this story, we're going to find out next week that in chapter 2, when he goes to the king, it was after four months, at least after four months, when he prayed first. When he wept, when he mourned first, four months later, he begins to take action. Now, I don't know if maybe it was in the prayer. It was in the prayer when he started praying, when he started offering these heartfelt prayers, that God said, you know what, I want you to be involved in this. I want you to be a part of this. So your starting point is not action. Your starting point is not the doing, but going to God. That's your starting point. Going to Jesus and offering your heartfelt prayers. Now we know that Jesus Christ is our better Nehemiah, who never chooses to sit down and weep, but he chooses to climb on a tree to die for us. Jesus Christ is our better Nehemiah, who never just fasted food, but he fasted his own life. He gave it away for us. Jesus Christ is our better Nehemiah who chooses to enter into our brokenness. And that he says, I'll become broken on your behalf. And you can have hope in me. We have hope in Jesus. Amen. We have hope in Jesus. Jesus Christ alone. Thanks for listening to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast. Please send us your feedback by commenting below or by emailing floodlilongwe at gmail.com.